Good evening. I have to start with a confession and then follow that with an admission. My confession is that I'm not an LSE graduate. Everybody who has been in my place, and I've been coming to these affairs for quite a long time, everybody who has stood here has been an LSE graduate. And I'm not. I'm an outsider. I'm an inferior being. I'm a stranger in a strange land. I'm an alien. And I hope you'll look kindly upon me in spite of all that. I was given a closely typed page of what I was to do and so on and so forth, and I'll try, try to behave. <laughs> um, my, my admission, my admission is slightly different. My admission is that I'm a chartered accountant. Now, it's not an admission I make that often, but it's important tonight for reasons to which I will come. When I was quite young, my father led me to believe that there were three tiers of society in British society. There was God at the top in whichever way you chose to worship him. And then there was a wonderful body of men, there weren't many women in those days, wonderful body of men called chartered accountants. <laughs> and then beneath that there was the sort of everybody else, the high polai, the, the, the common man. It was only when I started working in the city trying myself to be an accountant that I suddenly found my father who was never wrong never wrong, had got this one thing out of balance. God was still there. Everybody else was still there, and chartered accountants were some way <laughs> out the bottom. We haven't down the years had a particularly good press. I blame Oscar Wilde for starting it. An accountant is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And there's a rather nasty anonymous comment you can always tell a chartered accountant, but you can't tell him much. <laughs> and then there's a nasty, twisted, anonymous one, which is really quite unpleasant, in a sense. And actually, as a man who found being a chartered accountant too exciting. Um, I didn't mean to be a chartered accountant. When I was at university, my first intention was to be a philosophy don. And I saw myself, after graduation and a PhD perhaps, sitting in some leafy quad, perhaps under Bishop Barclay's sycamore tree, that's my Tom Stoppard remark for the evening, uh, dispensing philosophic wisdom. And then I realised quite quickly I didn't have the intellect to do that. There was no way I could have done that. So I changed my plan completely and I decided on the Royal Navy. Uh, I've always liked the Navy and the sea and ships. And I had this picture of myself on the bridge of a destroyer doing 35 knots in a half gale, swinging round, frightfully important, until somebody pointed out that I had glasses. And the Navy don't let you drive ships with glasses. And it was pointed out that probably what I would be doing is being in the bowels of the ship trying to reconcile the mess catering account. So I had to drop that. And I became a child accountant. <laughs> and I'll tell you why, how I became a child accountant in just a minute. But first of all, just as an aside, a single aside, I'm sure you know this. But whilst you're at university, these three years, this is the last time in your lives you will really have time to think seriously 
about what you actually want to do. I know you work quite hard here. I know you work very hard here. But once you get out there, you will work far, far harder than you've ever worked here. And the detritus of life will pour in on you. And there'll be marriage and children and education and careers and misery. Mortgages, thank you. <laughs> thank you, mortgages indeed. The pressures of life, it's very odd. They increase, they never decrease. Even at my age, they don't seem to decrease. So just, just pause for one, one moment, if you will. You have three years just to think about it. And don't be frightened about changing your minds. Remembering my philosophy, Don, and the naval officer, I sadly never was. So why did I actually became, become a chartered accountant? I became a chartered accountant because my father told me to become a chartered accountant, because that's what we did in those days. Um, he told me to become a chartered accountant because in 1854, my three great-great-uncles and my one great-grandfather formed Cooper Brothers. They were the four Cooper Brothers. And they formed Cooper Brothers, a small firm of chartered accountants working in George Street at the back of the mansion house in the city, just down the way. By the time it got to me, I was the last, or I was the only member of the fourth generation of the family in direct descent. I should mention my grandmother was very carelessly a woman, which is why I'm Benson, not Cooper, but we'll, we'll pass over that. I was the only member of the fourth generation who could come into the firm. And that is how my father wished it to be. And so it was. Cooper's at that time was just, he was senior partner and was just starting really to grow. So, obedient to a fault, I became a chartered accountant and I spent the next 40 years in Cooper's. I have never regretted the experience. I have been extraordinary, well, I think I've been extraordinarily lucky. But if you can walk with crowds and keep your virtue, or talk with kings nor lose the common touch, that's Mr. Kipling, of course, and that's the sort of experience I've been lucky enough to have as a chartered accountant. So, as an aside, a pure aside, for those of you who want to go into business, into the corporate world, entrepreneurs and all the rest of it, the best thing you can possibly do, I really mean this, is take the chartered accountant training first. Because that teaches you about business practically from the bottom up. And it's worth half a dozen MBAs, I assure you. You can always go off and do something else, but with that training behind you, you will understand how business works. And that's the key to everything. <coughs> so, back to my father, which is where I should have got to by this time. I won't burden you with his career, except to say that he was a very great and famous chartered accountant of international standing. Now you might say to me it's a contradiction in terms to contemplate a chartered accountant with all those talents, but he and one or two others in this country uh, did have them. And he took Cooper Brothers and Co. from an ordinary city firm at the end of the Second World War in a 25-year period to being one of the four great international firms in the world at that time. And happily, we're, we're, we're still there. 
He died in 1995, 20 years ago. And the firm, and by this time, Coopers had become Coopers and Lybrand, and then we turned ourselves into Price Waterhouse Coopers when we merged with PWs. But the firm, hugely generously, and I personally owe a great debt of thanks to my firm, to offer awards to the LSE scholarship scheme in his memory. And it's in his memory that I am here tonight. We have always sought high quality and disadvantaged students. Students, as Kim was saying, who might not possibly have the opportunity to come here at all if there wasn't a bit of help. And we have found those students. I've been very lucky. I've been allowed to interview every student we've put through. And the only heartfelt problem is the people you have to reject, who are very nearly as good as the people you want to accept. It's no fun striking people off the list. Why did we choose LSE? I was told to answer this, and I will. We chose LSE because we viewed it as a firm as best in class, best of breed, perhaps even best of show. And we've never doubted that our choice, for us, it's the right place to give our awards. Now, I needn't tell you all about the awards, because Kim has really done that. So, I was going to, but I don't have to, except to say, we do try to keep in touch with our students from beginning, going on indefinitely. The dinner, when we have everybody back, is the, the, the greatest fun. We have a mon uh, mentoring service, we try to mentor our students, and for those students who do want to come into PwC, and we do not, we do not push that ever, but we will try and take them, if, if we can. It's an extraordinary range. When we have our dinners, we go around the room and see what everybody's doing. The one I really like is the graduate who took a finance and accounting degree and decided she wanted to be a show dancer in British musicals on the London stage. And that is what she is doing. She changed her mind. She's very happy doing it. And it says, I don't know quite what it does say, but it says <laughs> something, uh, something very important. <laughs> I'm going to finish, if I may, with three thoughts or three things that I found important as being a chartered accountant. And I get these thoughts primarily from my father of long ago. Very briefly, the first thing, nothing is more important than practical experience in life. You have to do it to be able to do it. If it's, unmaking, if it's making an Ikea flat pack from a flat pack, which I can't do, or trying to balance a trial balance, which by God I couldn't do after all the training I had, it was awful. You've got to do it, and then you understand it. In the firm, in CB&Co, when I started, there were two mottos. The first had been handed down for Victorian times, and it was bleak. Absence of complaint is the highest form of praise, we were told. Think about that. That's quite depressing. <laughs> and the other thing from my father came, do the job properly. How I remember that, Peter, do the job properly. 
when he got his coat of arms, when he was made a peer, he had to choose a motto himself. And he wanted to do the job properly. And the College of Arms was incredibly stuffy about it. They said they couldn't translate that into Latin. I don't believe them. Uh, the best they could come up with was quod facio, valde facio. What I do, I do well. But what it really meant was do the job properly. So that's the first thing. Second, and I've learned this painfully because I'm something of a black and white man. I always have been. But life is all about shades of grey. And I'm not going there at all. <laughs> it, it's all about compromise. It's not accepting second best, ever. It's achieving as much as you possibly can, but recognising that you will very, very seldom get it all. When I did my intermediate uh, accountancy exams, I needed a cram course. So I went to a crammer's in Wales for 12 weeks. It's misery. I've never been back to Wales. And the man in charge of it was a man called Ronnie Anderson, who was a charismatic teacher. This, again, is a contradiction in terms. Think of it. A charismatic teacher of double-entry bookkeeping and consolidated accounts. How could that be? But he was wonderful at it. And he always talked about Willie. Willie was the man next to you in the examination hall. Willie could, out of the five questions you had to do, he could do one of them perfectly. And he would spend the whole exam doing it perfectly. And that question, as answered by Willie, would be the benchmark for the whole examination. We, he kept saying to us, can never, never, never attempt to do that. We have to get about 80% on all five questions to qualify at all. And that's what I mean about compromise. Go for the most you can get, but accept that you will have to compromise very often to get it. And if you have to negotiate to get it, keep talking. Go on talking. Tell them what you want, then tell them again, then tell them backwards, upside down, roundabout. Just go on talking, and you'll be amazed what you achieve. Finally, 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 and I've grossly overrun my time, I can feel the knives at my back as I speak. Recognise, this is a strange one, but it's helped me enormously. Recognise the value and power of humour. Humour carefully used. Humour carefully used, like a rapier. Not like a bludgeon or a club, I'm not talking about telling jokes or anything like that. It can alter a meeting. It can radically change, for the better, a meeting, a discussion, an argument, a confrontation, a row, a battle, or worst of all, a disaster. I have been working until recently with a very famous professor of medicine from Oxford. Brilliant man. He knows everything about medicine and not very much about corporate governance. I know nothing about medicine, and quite a lot about corporate governance. And we were on a board together, and I was his chairman, and it became apparent that we were going to clash on the matter of corporate governance. We couldn't avoid clashing about it. And we started to clash in a quite serious way. Until I noticed that every board meeting he came to, he came with appalling coloured shirts. Appalling coloured shirts. And on top of the appalling coloured shirt, 
he would put a tie that would quite deliberately, savagely clash. And one day, I plucked up courage and I drew my board's attention to this, this problem of the shirt and the tie, which was clearly distressing us as board members. And we laughed about it, we joked about it, and although we had, I and my professor friend, this brilliant man, we had terrible rows after that. They were different rows. Underneath, we were friends. It's a tremendous lesson. Laugh and the world laughs with you. Cry and you cry alone. That is very true. I tell our students, Kim and the like, and what a performance from Kim tonight, I tell them always at the dinner, because it's the truth, it's the absolute truth, that they are best in class and best of breed. And I see that magnified in front of me tonight. And it's a great privilege to have been allowed to be here and talk to you. May I wish you all the very best of success in the years to come. Thank you so much.